So we're walking through this theme we're calling Breaking Barriers. And I have to tell you, the reason uh, we, we're, we're exploring this theme is because we're convinced that anywhere Jesus is invited, anywhere his movement becomes a part of a person's life, barriers will be broken. And there's something to the, the acts and the words of Jesus, beyond just his earthly ministry, but even as you explore the book of Acts, what we see is that there are all kinds of barriers, ethnic barriers, racial barriers, there's barriers of hatred and anger and violence that are all broken down one by one by one by one. And people are, are any hurdle that would get in the way of a person being able to receive the love of God through Jesus or any person being able to express love to another human being, those barriers, wherever Jesus is invited, they're just broken down. They collapse and they get weakened and undermined and they get destroyed and unity erupts. There's something beautiful that happens. And so we're exploring this together. But what we're going to take a look at in, t- in our time here we have is that the scriptures fundamentally will challenge something in our core, especially today in, in the world we live in today. And what I want to propose is that we're going to see scriptures continually invite us to be open-minded about what God is capable of doing in a person's life. That we need to know this, whether we're exploring faith in Jesus or we have become convinced following Jesus is worth our life endeavor, wherever we might be on that spectrum, we need to know this. It will expand our worldview rather than limit it. That this faith of ours, it's not a closed-minded faith. That those who follow Jesus at our best, if we surrender to what the scriptures call us to, you know what they do? They open our, we become the most open-minded individuals because we're not afraid or threatened by what is possible in this world of ours. And we know that truth is owned by a man, his name is Jesus. And that wherever truth might be, there is something of God's fingerprint. And so because this is the case, we have to know at our core, you know what's going to be challenged? Is our internal pessimist or skeptic, it's going to challenge, you know what most going to be challenged? Is what we might be closed-minded because of the way we were raised, because of the uh, culture we live in, because of the, our background, because of our education, because of our situation, because of our experience, because of our wounds and our baggage, whatever it might be, and all of those, th- those barriers, God's going to challenge us. Will you let them, will you surrender them? Be open. Will you be open? And this is particularly true when the scriptures speak of the supernatural. (laughs) There's so many, both Older Testament and Newer Testament events in scripture that we are just simply asked to suspend judgment. There's no qualification. There's no attempt to explain the details of the miraculous. We're invited into a world in which they just are real. 
And we are then asked and invited to suspend judgment and to be open-minded. Do you think God is capable of doing this? And this is uh, significant in my mind because we live in a world where rational thought has been elevated to the highest expression of what it looks like to be human. In our society today, I don't know if we know this or not, but we live in a sector in the country where there is an enormously high amount of PhDs per capita. Education is number one. And in a, in a place such as ours where technological and medical advancements as it is at an all-time high, innovation at an all-time high, such as San Francisco or Silicon Valley, rational thought is gold. And there's nothing against it. It's good. But you know what that creates? It creates a tension. It creates a tension where we then, to speak of faith or religion, we can easily become uh, defined as taking a step out of rational thought. And if that's the case with just the fundamentals of being open to the possibility of a divine creator who is good, then to speak of what he's capable of and to describe it as miraculous, <laughs> that becomes proof positive. That faith in Jesus, if we're not careful, faith in Jesus actually decreases, not increases one's intelligence. And we no longer operate in this real world. And I think this is important for us to grapple with because the scriptures seem to invite us over and over and over to the possibility that God, who is supernatural, behaves in supernatural ways. And so how do we reconcile this in a world such as ours? I think it's important for us to know something. We need to know that there are philosophical underpinnings that will be challenged over and over anytime we're invited into the world of the scriptures. And there's this man, Craig Keener, who succinctly explained it as best as he could in two volumes. A, a scholar, by the way, who's respected in Christian and secular circles, Craig Keener, in his two-volume work called Miracles, wrote this. And I asked him to put this up there because I thought it was, it was good for us to just examine. He says, scientists are experts about the normal happenings of nature, by definition. But when asking whether something outside the norm happens, they no longer speak as scientists per se. Because how to address anomalies or metanormal phenomena it is a philosophical question. Inherently, that is what it is. Thus, for, one ex for example, one scientist who rejects miracles acknowledges that his reasons are essentially theological rather than scientific. He concedes that a god could theoretically break his own laws, but this scientist is repelled by the idea that God would do so as special revelation in history. In other words, what Craig Keener is very adeptly pointing out is that the scientific method works with what is explainable, observable, and testable. That it works with data and information that already exists in nature. And so it, at its optimal level, it creates an environment that is controlled and it tests a hypothesis over and over and over to figure out if it is possible to do once again. It is something that is inherently required within the world of nature. So. Once you speak of the abnormal or the metanormal, the um, phenomena that would qual qualify as anomalies or spontaneous or unpredictable, that discussion is worthy of the discussion. It's worth having, no question about it. But what Craig, is, Craig Keener is pointing out is it's no longer a scientific discussion. 
because science cannot be applied to an environment that isn't testable, observable, that isn't reproducible. And so which means that the conversation is no longer a scientific one, it's a philosophical one. To discuss the cause and the origin of the supernatural, it's not an irrational conversation. It's just a different type of rational conversation, which means our presuppositions, how we enter the conversation matters. It matters because to the scientist who's from the very beginning is repelled by the idea that God would break the laws of nature has already concluded, presupposed it's not possible philosophically. Even though to have integrity is to say the scientist in him would actually be more than willing to explore if it is possible. That is what science does. So it's important for us to understand this because um, miracles can't be explained through a scientific lens. They have to be explored through a different lens. And they either challenge us at our core to be open to the possibility that the world presented to us in the scriptures is possible. Or we decide, we decide to limit our thinking. Scripture always seeks to expand it. We have to know that on the front end. It's very, very important. Um, you know, this, this idea is something that the scriptures inherently invite us into. And it's a conversation. Why is it important? Because it just seems over and over and over again that it is a conversation the authors of the scriptures not only assumed and, and in some ways took for granted, they invite any reader and any faith explorer into the conversation. They really do. And so I thought it, it'd be good for us to explore it through this lens. What would it look like to be open to what God is capable of doing in a person's life? If you open up your handout, I'd love for us to look at this passage together. And we find it in Acts 9, verse 32. And we see from the get-go, by the way, Acts, just kind of as a refresher for some of us and for some of us who may not know, it's written by a physician 2,000 years ago, yes, but a physician nonetheless, a man of education, a man of means, a man of intellect. And he's written to another man named Theophilus, who by, by the very nature of being able to read and write and communicate has already been in the upper percentile of that population. And so this is a document produced by an educated man being sent to another educated man. This is not a marginalized poor sector of the world is my point. And what is being described here is an enormous amount of evidence for to verify this movement of Jesus. And we're told in verse, nine, in verse 32 of Acts 9, and we're told that this is Luke writing, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Luda, which is how you would, how you would pronounce that word. The ESV, by the way, says that, that first word now as meanwhile, translates it as, it's almost as if Luke is, Luke is saying, meanwhile, as Saul was being transformed into Paul, as he was becoming this completely different man, Peter was also doing things. And he turns his gaze towards Peter, his whereabouts. And look at this. He was meticulous in documenting. By the way, Luke does this all throughout his account. In documenting the locations and the people involved in the movement of Jesus. 
He describes towns, Luda, which is 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He later describes Joppa, which is a town by in his day and age would be verifiable. You could go there in his day. You could visit, you could discuss with the different people that were impacted by what we're about to read. In fact, I asked him to just put a, briefly a map up for us to be able to see. This is Luke's, Luke's way of centralizing what he documented for Theophilus, look at this, into the real world. This is his way of saying, without saying it directly, this is no fairy tale, this is no legend, this is no myth, this really happened. This really occurred. You could go there. This is kind of the underlying tone, Theophilus. You could, you could go talk to them if you wanted. You could go verify yourself. I already did, but you could too. And we're told in verse 33, that as, as Peter made his way to Luda there, he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Then all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The description we're given here, we have to assume a couple things. One, we must assume that Peter is making his way throughout his surrounding towns around Jerusalem because he's hearing of different communities sprouting up around Jesus, faith in Jesus. And he's going and he's checking in on them as one of the apostolic leaders of this movement. And so he goes to Luda and in this, in this gathering, which would, by the way, there was way before any of them owned any particular kind of large building to gather in like this one, they would gather in people's homes. And we're led to believe that this gathering, particular gathering he went to check in on in Luda, had a man named Aeneas in whose home the gathering probably took place. And he was bedridden, unable to move, paralyzed, we're told, which is another way of saying he was completely immobile. He was completely dependent on others to move around. Peter looks at him and he declares, he makes this statement, Jesus heals you. Another way of saying it is Jesus wants to heal you right now. And the man is then given full recovery from his paralysis. And I find it somewhat humorous. Luke decides to add this small detail. The first thing he's told to do is, um, Aeneas, get up and, and will you make your bed, will you? Will you, will you make your bed, please? You know, it's kind of like making many mothers and wives very happy, you know? It's like the very first action. Will you at least clean up, right? Make yourself useful a little bit, huh? Stop lying around. It's like that's kind of the... All right, Jesus healed you. Now, now can you, you know, tidy up? That's kind of what's being shown here. The surrounding communities hear about this. They, they go and they want to see it with their own eyes. And they hear him. And they see him. And they, they question him. No doubt, they're, they're investigating the veracity. Is, 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 is the product as real as the commercial? Is it as advertised? We heard about this, but now, Aeneas, can you, can you walk before us right now? Can you, can you, can you, can you tell us how this happened? Peter, what, what, what occurred? And all the while, as this is, event is happening in Luda, there, something else occurs. W what happens? Many, were told, Luke says, they turned to the Lord. It's another way of saying they became open to the possibility that this Jesus is real. And they decided to believe in him. To trust him. <laughs> Not just that. Because there was, in verse 36, in Joppa, a nearby town, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. That would be translated into Greek. Translated into English would mean gazelle. 
And she was full of good works and acts of charity. She was a woman with a tremendous reputation for generosity and good deeds. And we're told in verse 37, those days she became ill and rather bluntly as a physician would, died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room since Luda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there and no doubt hearing of what had just happened. They sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. There's a sense of an expectation. They heard what happened to the man who was paralyzed for eight years. Word spread. Not just of Peter's whereabouts, but of what he had just done in the name of Jesus. And so they sent two men to him. Will you come? Will you come, please? Because there's somebody deserving of a miracle. It's almost an expectation, an assumption could readily be made. That is what they were hoping would happen. In verse 39, we're told the verse that so Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them, which is, by the way, a beautiful picture of a woman who lived well. Because you could see it. They bring him up to the upper room. They open the door. There she is, washed and prepared for burial. And all of the widows, which would represent the most marginalized group of people in that town, disenfranchised, were mourning. And everyone was there weeping. And what were they doing? They, they call Peter and they go, look, look, she literally clothed us with her generosity. It, it's amazing. It's, it's overt that she left such an impression with how she lived, even in her death, she continued to minister. Think about that. Her generosity continued to comfort those who were there mourning her passing. Real physical evidence of her love. And there seems to be kind of this underlying tone, will you please, Peter, we heard about what you just did. Do you think uh, God can do something amazing? Verse 40, Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. We don't know exactly how he prayed, what he prayed. We know who he prayed to. We know he talked to Jesus, knowing he himself had no power, no ability to do anything. And he turned to the body and he said, Tabitha, arise. And what we're told is that she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and he raised her up off the bed. Perhaps, we don't know exactly, but perhaps I know any one of us would be stunned at what just happened. Helps her off of the bed, walks her towards the door, calling all the saints and the widows. He opens the door and he presented her. Here, here she is, speechless. No words to share, just the evidence, the results. And it became known throughout all Joppa, as it would today, anywhere. Reports of miracles and healings. And Peter says, that's what happened. And many, many throughout all Joppa believed in the Lord, came. And if it happened with Aeneas, it certainly happened with, with Tabitha. It certainly happened with this woman of generosity and good deeds. It's almost as if Luke, in his um, compilation of this, this account, is creating a ladder of miracles. 
A first miracle involved a person who was paralyzed, could not move. The second miracle involved a lifeless woman, ceased breathing. In both cases, by the way, both cases, the one who was immobile and the one who was lifeless, the outcome was the same. Full restoration of life and health. Two miracles. Two miracles that Jesus performed in his own ministry. Two miracles. One, that he spoke into a man's life and said, rise up, pick up your bed, and get moving. Move on with your life. You are now made whole. And the other one, when he calls on a man who's been buried in a tomb for three days, and he calls life out of that tomb, and he comes out, and in both cases, people all around are stunned. And in both cases, people all around, they don't know what to say except that this is miraculous. It, both echoing the very things Jesus did. Two miracles, two miracles that without explanation, qualification, or detail, you know what they do? They authenticate and certify Peter's role in this movement. It's almost as if to say they're evidence of his street cred. It's, it's God's way of stamping, yes, this is real. And Peter is a leader in this movement. Two miracles both attributed to Jesus, both creating, not just impacting the individuals who received it, not just impacting the surrounding community who already had faith in God and Jesus, but also creating both of them external interest in this whole Jesus way. And people who perhaps weren't as interested all of a sudden became interested. And people who perhaps were skeptical all of a sudden became believers. Two miracles that changed not just the individual, the community, but the entire society in which this miracle occurred. The human experience completely elevated. This is a wonderful account. I think it helps us to better understand the world the scriptures presents to us because, you know, I don't know about you, but I have hangups about miracles. I really do. I have a personal situation in which I would say, God, can you perform a miracle? And I believe he can do it. But there are hurdles. And I ask people, different people, you know, what would you say your barriers are to believing the miracles are possible? And no question, people say to me, well, why do they happen to some and not others? Or why is it that they, I hear about them in other parts of the world, as close as Mexico, as far as Africa. But I don't hear about them here in San Francisco, or in San Jose, or in Oakland. Why? Why is it that it seems that in the scriptures, they just seem to happen one after another, after another, after another, but here, they never seem to happen? Well, how come um, God answered Peter's prayer immediately? But my prayer has been being uttered for years, and he's yet to answer. <laughs> Here's the thing about those questions. They're valid questions. They're real questions. They're real hurdles, real barriers. It just seems the world the scriptures presents to us, they don't necessarily ignore those questions. It just seems they seem to magnify something very different. And as they magnify and they highlight something about why they're important for us to acknowledge and why they're important for us to explore, it seems that in the exploration of that, these questions become less significant. And so I just want to put a couple things on the table for us. 
that I think scriptures highlight when it comes to the supernatural work of God in people's lives. And I want to suggest something to you. I want to suggest to you that miracles reveal a couple things. One, I think miracles reveal that the material and the spiritual world is actually in one integrated whole. That there is an understanding within the scriptures that they present to us a clear assumption. There is no such thing as a separation between spirit and physical. And this, in today, in modern society, especially modern Western society, this is actually really hard for us to grapple and understand and know how, how different this worldview is than the one we walk in. Because we live in a compartmentalized society. We live in a, in a culture that likes to segment this human experience. And this world, this life of what it looks like to be human. And the scriptures say that it doesn't matter what human being, where that human being is, or where that human being came from. That human being is both physical and spiritual. That no matter what background, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what language, no matter what culture, no matter what religion, they are always spiritual and physical. That there is something of an integrated whole, an understanding of humanity. And this is a, a very important because it, it means that God's work in our lives is never, ever limited to our soul. Um, the thought that there is a separate, compartmentalized, physical and spiritual world, it's not scriptural. It's philosophical. And it began with a man named Plato. We've got to know this. See, Plato is the man who said that this human experience indeed has a spiritual side and a physical side. But his understanding and what he has proposed and what has blossomed all around us is that the immaterial part of us is the best part of us. It's inherently good. And the material, the physical part of us is broken and it's evil. In fact, it's worse than evil. It's a jail in which our soul, our essence is trapped. And so this physical world is bad and the, the immaterial world is good. And that is how we are to understand this human experience as a struggle between two sides of us. And I have to say, Jesus disagrees with Plato. Because Jesus' understanding is that the, God created both material and immaterial and he called it good. That when he created everything in the world, he said, this is good. It's all good. And it means that he longs to restore not just our soul, but our entire beings. And that this journey of faith is never limited or segmented to certain only pockets of our lives. It's actually meant to expand into every single segment of who we are. By the way, this is why Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he wrote this. He, he, look at the uses of words he, he said to them. He, I asked him to put this up there in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Now may the God of peace, may the God of peace, look, make you holy in every way, and may your whole, look at this, spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. It's Paul's way of saying, God cares about every aspect of who you are, not just your soul. He cares about every single point. It means that when we invite Jesus into our lives, we are to consider this faith of ours as a holistic faith. It means that there's, it all matters. Does this mean that he will perfect us right now today? Oh, I wish that were the case. 
But it does mean that self-care matters to God. It does mean as details as small as sleeping patterns matter to God. It does mean that sometimes anxiety is actually a physical manifestation, not just a spiritual one. It does mean that we are emotional beings, we are relational beings, we are cerebral beings, we are rational. It means all of it matters to God. So many times I've had conversations with people, both in our community and outside, the minute they find out I'm a pastor and they like to convert whatever we're at into a confessional booth. (laughs) And they ask for prayer. A lot of times, you know what it comes down to? Will you pray my loneliness away? And that is the understanding of what it looks like to be a spiritual being. But the scriptures say you can never pray loneliness away. You can only relate it away. You can only relate it away. Because loneliness inherently means alone without relationship. And faith in God calls us toward relationship. He longs to heal our emotions our traumas, our wounds, our baggage. He longs to heal our thought patterns, our self-talk, our self-image. He longs to speak in every aspect of who we are because there is no separation. We are one whole being. And you know what the scriptures understand is that really what it looks like to be human is to be animated by the Spirit of God. Yes, There is spirit and there is physical. The spirit is meant to animate the physical. And when we see this, we know that our entire beings are being touched by the grace of Jesus from now until the day he returns or the day we go to meet him. That, that is a holistic understanding of what it looks like to be on this faith journey. Secondly, you know what it it looks like? It means that Jesus is the pathway. Miracles reveal that Jesus is the pathway toward wholeness, that he is the pathway. Um, I couldn't help but be reminded of a quote that Tim Keller wrote in his book, Reasoning for God, where he is essentially attempting to bridge the gap today that has been created between rational and faith. Rational thought and faith thought. He says, well, there's no actually division. There's been one created, but there's no actual division. Because he says this, he says, when we modern people, we think of miracles as a suspension of natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of natural order. Uh, The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, or death in it. And Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and to heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. That's what miracles reveal. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds. They are a promise to our hearts that the world we want is coming. That anytime we read of a human being being restored or we hear of a miracle happening in somebody else's life, I know the temptation is, but why not me? And why not today? And why not here? But the promise is one day, one day, one day, one day, one day it will be me. And one day it will be here. And one day it will be everywhere because he longs to restore everything, everything with his grace. 
All of it with wholeness, all of it with strength. And so many times I'm convinced Jesus longs to increase a sense of wholeness in our experience and to such a degree that I think we have, we have diminished his miracles to insignificant things when actually they're rather significant. I don't know about you, but I have had conversations with people who have, who have experienced a miraculous touch of Jesus in their lives, and I would say, what does it look like? It looks like a conviction to do what is right against their own self-destructive desires. And I, hearing the struggle, and hearing the agony, and hearing the pain, and hearing the, the need to remain I would say, it's miraculous. I, I, I've seen it. I've experienced it. When he provides courage to remain in a key relationship, a conversation, or a situation against fear, where everything in them wants to bolt, or everything in us wants to just go the easier way, but something in our soul, breathed by God, says, no, stay, stick it out, endure, suffer long, and you will see breakthrough. And they do. I've seen it. When we're given passion to pursue a dream or a challenge, we know we will require the best of us. And we know it's not real in the physical world around us yet. It's real in our minds and in our hearts and it's real in our imaginations. And we pursue it tenaciously, passionately. And one day it becomes real. And we know I'm only here because of his grace. It is a miracle. I think our entire nation saw a miracle this week. We wouldn't know it. We wouldn't define it that way. It was highly discussed. Very controversial. But I know I saw a miracle. And I was deeply moved to tears, honestly. When I saw a human being treat another human being who had murdered their own flesh and blood, not with vengeance or anger or condemnation, but with forgiveness on his lips, genuine affection toward that person. When an 18-year-old boy spoke forgiveness to an officer who had taken the life of his brother and said these words, I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad on you. And I want you to turn your life to God, for he will forgive you. And I want you to surrender yourself to Jesus, because I forgive you. And then he turned to the judge and he said, can I, um, can I go just hug her? And he stepped out of the witness chair and he goes over to her and he just embraces her. That's miraculous. That is what Jesus does to the human heart. That is how he moves in a soul, where he removes all desire of vengeance and anger, rightfully so. And he injects mercy and grace and forgiveness. And he uses that person to speak dignity and love and acceptance. <laughs> that is miraculous. There is absolutely no brokenness Jesus cannot touch. There is no bridge too far for him. There is no barrier he cannot break down. There is no rift he cannot reconcile. It's what he does. It is what he does, which, by the way, 
to me, this is why miracles reveal Jesus' ability to transform our lives. You know what he does? He transforms our lives into arrows towards God. There is so much discussion around that event. There is so much discussion around it. And all of it could get hung up in all different pockets. But at the end of the day, you know what it was? It was so clearly an arrow toward this is only because of what Jesus has done in my life. And this is only because of what Jesus wants to do in your life. He transforms human beings, us, into road signs along somebody else's faith journey. And this is where he, he alone, is able to turn. Listen, the highest expression of God's reality is a human being touched by his grace. That's it. We are the walking miracles. He does this when he converts our soul into a soul filled with life that was actually filled with darkness and death. When he softens a hardened heart, when he removes shame and guilt from us, when he alleviates our burden and takes away our pessimism and replaces it with optimism and hope rooted in real, real possibility. When he when he filters our speech that is filled with anger and hatred and actually peppers it with life and grace and mercy and goodness and kindness. When he uses us as people who say, yes, I have a past, but my future is better. When he uses us to step into people's lives and into their wounds and doesn't use us as judgment or condemnation, but uses us as people who elevate them and, and speak dignity into them and speak life into them and give them a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh chance. Because that is how Jesus behaves towards us. And the miracle is that he empowers us to behave that way toward others. <laughs> I can't tell you how important this is to me. Because it was over 20 years ago that I found myself in, in one of these chairs. And I can tell you, I wouldn't have found myself in one of these chairs giving God a chance if I hadn't seen my own dad give God a chance. And my dad wouldn't have give, given God a chance if he hadn't seen something of a miracle happen in front of his own eyes. He had a very close friend, a business associate. Something really tragic happened to him. This friend of his had a wife and three kids, and his wife was diagnosed with brain tumor. In three months, she passed away, completely removed from the family. And my father, being his best friend as he could, walked alongside this man as best as he could, and he observed this man. And for about a year, he did this as best as he could. And after a year, he asked him, he says, his name was Dale. Is Dale. Dale, how is it possible that you have held yourself together, your family together, and everything you're doing together throughout this year without your wife? She was just taken from you. I can't imagine being in that place. Three little kids. Dale said to my dad, I've told you before. I've told you. I've invited you to church, and I can tell you that over this last year, it's the community, the church community I am part of, those people showing up in my life, showing up in the lives of my children, those prayers of these people, they, they have prayed for me, they have prayed over me, they have prayed for my sons, they have prayed for our future, they have prayed for our pain, they have prayed for our burden, they have prayed for everything. They have covered us, they've supplied us, they've supported us, they've, they've given us rides, they've given us meals, they've gathered all around us. And I can tell you that them, combined with their prayers, combined with the Spirit of God in my own soul that whispers hope into my tragedy, I can tell you I have not held anything together. I have been held together. And it's on that evidence, my dad said, uh, do you have a church you recommend? 
He says, yeah, there's this church in San Francisco by where you live. It's called Cornerstone. <laughs> and um, they have this thing, the Easter play. You should go check it out. And he came. And he sat right up there in the balcony. And he went home. And it was about three months later that I started seeing actually a shift happen in this man that was cold and, in my mind, mean <laughs> and hard and tough actually became soft and gentle. And it wasn't like I was the easiest to be soft and gentle with. <laughs> I was at the height of my rebellion, pushing him to the edge. And to see him no longer respond with anger, no longer seek to intimidate, no longer seek to respond out of his fear, but to see him turn around and respond with patience and respond with understanding and respond with the conversation and respond with the ability to say, I, I don't agree with you, but I love you. To see a man change right in front of my own eyes, I'll tell you what, made me say, ah, maybe this God is real. See, we who have been touched by his grace, we are walking miracles. And God will surround us with people who want to know he's real. And the only way they'll know that he's real is if we're willing to say, come and examine my life and you will see my life is an arrow. Because <clears throat> I stand by grace and grace alone. I am held by grace and grace alone. <laughs> Perhaps we are the means by which God breaks down the last barrier in somebody else's life to experience his love. Uh, in a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving. We're going to close together in a song. But I want to pray, God, thank you that you are not limited in any way, shape, or form to events that happened 2,000 years ago, to words that were written in ancient documents, but that you are alive. You're closer than we even know. You're more present then we're aware of, I ask that you would, you would truly continue the miraculous work you've started in our lives. And if there's any of us, God, who have not experienced your life and your love and your grace, I pray you give us the strength to be open, to surrender, to allow you to do what we think is impossible, but you love to do. May you speak life, may you speak wholeness, may you use us as arrows for others to see you. We ask for you to do miracles in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.